Welcome to the Thurfield Chapel Sermon Podcast. Right, well, good morning, everyone. It's uh, great to see you all uh, this morning and uh, to know that presumably there are some people watching online. Hello to you as well. Uh, <clears throat> as Ben said, my name is Andrew uh, and I'm also one of the elders here at chapel and it's my privilege to uh, speak to you today uh, on this passage, uh, Luke uh, chapter 11, verses 37 to 54. Uh, <clears throat> a passage of woes, uh, and I'm going to sum it all up in just one sentence. Woe to those who misrepresent God. Now, if you or others that you know don't want to follow Jesus Christ, then the chances are that the Jesus Christ you don't want to follow probably is not the true Jesus revealed in the Gospels. He is a misrepresentation of the truth. Maybe he is the gentle Jesus, meek and mild, that you remember singing about in Sunday school days. Or maybe the Jesus you don't want to follow is characterized by, uh, on TV by the weak and simpering village vicar who wouldn't say boo to a goose. After all, who would want to follow someone like that? But would you prefer to follow someone who is deliberately offensive to those who offer him hospitality and when criticized for it, calls them greedy, wicked fools who are leading people to hell? Because that is who Luke presents to us here in this gospel. Maybe that's not the most compelling reason to follow Luke's Christ, But then again, if his hosts actually were leading people to hell, then calling them out for it would be the best thing to do. And of course, that was the case. The Christ Luke wants us to follow is able to say exactly the right thing in whatever circumstance he is in. He is in control of every situation. Even when it might seem that he acts impetuously or impulsively, what he says and does is deliberately chosen to be of the most benefit to those that he is speaking to and those who observe. And sometimes that will be be to encourage and build up those whose hearts have the right attitude to God, but who lack the courage to approach him. And other times, as here, that will be to shock those who are self-righteous and hypocritical into realizing how far they really are from God, from the God they purport to serve. And for my money, it certainly is worth following this, this Christ, who I can trust to always lead, to push or to pull me into a closer relationship with God, whose interest is that I flourish in his presence. Now, the last time in Luke's account when Jesus went to a Pharisee's house for dinner, it was in chapter 7, which we studied back in April last year. And it was his host who committed a social faux pas by not making provision for Jesus to freshen himself up before the meal. You may remember that a sinful woman came and washed his feet with her tears, much to the Pharisees' disgust. But this time, perhaps surprisingly, it is Jesus who insults his host and the other important guests by not following their custom of washing before the meal. Now, this isn't so much of a feeling of hygiene as a feeling of etiquette. 
It's not clear whether Jesus washed his hands in any fashion or not. And strange though it might seem to most of us who have been brought up with uh, knowing the importance of soap and water for reducing the chance of picking up germs, uh, this was not the norm, of course, 2,000 years ago. What Jesus had failed to do, and deliberately so, was to follow an elaborate ritual which the Jews had developed before meals, based around the actual Levitical laws about purity and avoiding defilement. Their practice was to go through a a ritual of symbolically washing their hands with a very small amount of water, little more than an egg and a half, apparently, of water, and reciting, Blessed is he who sanctified us with his commandments and commanded us concerning the washing of of hands. To fail to do so before eating was seen as the same class of sin as sleeping with a prostitute. There is no doubt then that Jesus' host took genuine offence at his inaction. But although it went against the tradition of the elders, it was not in fact a breach of the law itself, where ritual washing of hands and feet was only a requirement for priests. So when Jesus is taken to task for this, he, he hits back savagely at his hosts and many of the other guests because their attitudes were dangerously wrong and left uncorrected would prevent people from entering the kingdom of God because they were misrepresenting him. Their fundamental failure was to be more concerned with outward appearance than the inner condition of their hearts. Their approach was like washing the outside of a cup, uh, the bit that could be seen, uh, unlike, of course, if this wasn't a glass, if this was a cup, you couldn't see the inside, the bit that's actually in contact with the water, and more important, perhaps. For all their concern with ritual purity, they were motivated, in fact, by their own advantage and not by compassion for others. Jesus then proceeds to pronounce six woes against them, which, like the woes we covered a year ago in Luke 6, are strong warnings that their behavior would result in their doom, and so must be changed. I'm going to look in quite some detail at this first woe, which will also lay bare many of the issues that the later five will pick out. And the first woe that Jesus pronounces on the Pharisees is that they are fastidious in giving a tenth of everything that grows, and yet they neglect justice and love of God. Tithing, the giving of a tenth of your income to God's work, can be a touchy subject, particularly for us Brits, who don't like to talk publicly about our finances. It can also be an abusive subject if church leaders pressurize people to give more so that they can take a bigger salary. And so it's good that it is me and not our pastor Paul who has this passage this morning. The practice of tithing comes from the Old Testament. And although in essence the idea is fairly simple, there are actually three different references to it which result in some disagreement as to what it was meant to mean for the nation of Israel, never mind what it should mean for the church today. The first and most commonly known tithe is stipulated in Leviticus 27. Uh, There we go. 
A tithe of everything from the land, whether grain from the soil or fruit from the trees, belongs to the Lord. It is holy to the Lord. Every tithe of the herd and flock, every tenth animal that passes under the shepherd's rod, will be holy to the Lord. Now in those days, almost everyone farmed either crops or animals or both. And their income came from what they grew and from, what, from the growth of their herds. And so 10% of their produce was to be given to the Lord. And in Numbers 18, it's clear, uh, it made a bit more clear how this was to be used. The Lord said to Aaron, You will have no inheritance in their land, nor will you have any share among them. I am your share and your inheritance among the Israelites. I give to the Levites all the tithes in Israel as their inheritance in return for the work that they do while serving at the tent of meeting. Now Israel was divided into 12 tribes according to uh, their descent from each of the 12 sons of, of the man, Israel. 11 of those tribes were allocated portions of land according to their size, but the tribe of Levi from whom Aaron and also Moses came were not they were to dedicate their lives and their time to the service of God rather than to farming. The rest of Israel was to provide for their needs by giving a share of their produce, a tenth, a tithe to the Levites. Now, it doesn't take a mathematical genius to work out that the Levites would end up with 11 tenths of the average tribe's produce and the others would be left with just nine tenths. It's difficult to get an accurate comparison of tribal sizes, but it would seem that Levi was actually a bit smaller than the average, which would mean that their income would be significantly more than the uh, person, uh, more per person than the other tribes. Even when you take into account that, depending on how you interpret it, part of the, the food that the Levites received was to be sacrificed to the Lord, it was a generous arrangement for them. Now, while the focus of the Levites' work is clearly around service in the temple, their functions actually incorporated not only what today we might see as the function of the church, but the law courts, the civil service, and to an extent the NHS and the education system too. The vision of how Israel should run, as set out in Leviticus and Numbers in particular, was that they should prioritize the worship of God. And as part of that, to prioritize justice and welfare throughout the nation. Worship of God was not separated from social justice and welfare. These were inseparable, both in their law and in the ministry of the Levites. So the Levitical tithe, as this first one is known, was a sort of tax to pay for the main functions of the state. At 10%, it's pretty low compared with the average for developed countries today, which take over a third of national income to pay for all that the state provides. So the 10% Levite tax looks a pretty good deal for everyone. The Levites get an above-average income, and the people get their state services for a fraction of what it costs today. That's not the end of the story, though, because more tithing is mentioned. We come to Deuteronomy chapter 14. Be sure to set aside a tenth of all that your, your fields produce each year. 
Eat the tithe of your grain, new wine and olive oil, and the firstborn of your herds and flocks in the presence of the Lord at the place he will choose as a dwelling for his name, so that you may learn to revere the Lord your God always. But if that place is too distant for you and you have been blessed by the Lord your God and cannot carry your tithe because the place where the Lord your God will choose to put his name is so far away, then exchange your tithe for silver and, use, uh, and take the silver with you and go to the place the Lord your God will choose. Use that silver to buy whatever you like, cattle, sheep, wine or other fermented drink, anything you wish. Then you and your household shall eat there in the presence of the Lord your God and rejoice. Here, the use use to which the tithes are to be put is quite different from what we saw earlier. Rather than being handed over to the Levites, this tithe is is to be used to have a massive celebration feast. There were three major festivals throughout the year. Passover, held in the springtime, Pentecost in the early summer, and Tabernacles in the late summer. Each would last for several days to a week, And as well as being major religious occasions, they were times of general celebration, partying, and holiday. These would be no small affairs. Can you imagine spending 10% of your income and eating 10% of your calorie intake over the course of roughly three weeks in the year? Well, actually, that's not dissimilar to what happens today, where we might spend 10% of our budget on holidays. Apparently, that's quite normal. And when we're on holiday, we might eat twice as much as normal too. As we saw with the close coupling of worship for God with social justice and welfare, here their great festivals were times of rejoicing in the presence of the Lord. Clearly that would uh, give a different tenor compared to what we think of of as a festival today marked by hedonism, selfishness and laziness as the piles of rubbish and discarded camping equipment which is left behind shows. But with the focus first on God, the rejoicing of the people was to be no less exuberant than today's festivals. They were allowed to buy fermented drink after all. But instead of selfishness, sharing and caring for others was to be the hallmark. Because you can't be selfish if you're truly worshipping God. Now verse 27 adds to this, Do not neglect the Levites living in your towns, for they have no allotment or inheritance of their own. Now some use this as a means of combining this festival tithe with the first Levitical tithe, since it's mentioned that the Levites are to get a share, so that only 10% in total is meant. But I think it's really saying, share your festival food freely with the Levites. And this even though the Levites had a bigger income and could have tithed that for their festivals. But there is a third type of tithe that's mentioned immediately afterwards in verses 28 and 29. At the end of every three years... Bring all the tithes of that year's produce and store it in your towns so that the Levites who have no allotment or inheritance of their own and the foreigners, 
The fatherless and the widows who live in your towns may come and eat and be satisfied so that the Lord your God may bless you in all the works of your hands. Now this is a bit more ambiguous. At the most generous in the third year, an additional 10% of the harvest is to be set aside, not simply for for the Levites, but for refugees and families with no breadwinner. In those days, families where the husband or father had died. And at its most mean, it could mean that just one tithe is given in the third year, but that the Levites had to share it more widely. But I suspect greater generosity is expected here. So what we have then is a system of taxes which amounts to 20% every year and an extra 10% every third year. And from this, the entire function of the state is to be funded. The entire operation of their temple and synagogues, their justice system, social care and welfare, education, even their culture and entertainment. Rather than being seen as a tax burden, which is how tax is seen by most people today, this giving was to be done joyfully and fundamentally as an act of worship to God. After putting God first, all the other functions of the state fall naturally into place, and all the needs of all the people can be met, including spiritual, social, mental, and physical needs. And all this for a mere 23 and a third of the national percent of the national income. Quite a bargain. So it's just a shame that there isn't much evidence that Israel ever lived out this radical welfare state. <clears throat> but perhaps you can see something of the beauty of the law here. Not something that should be oppressive, but joyful. Not something to benefit a few, but for everyone. Not something to be resented, but to be celebrated. And perhaps now you can see why Jesus was so upset with what the Jewish leaders had turned tithing into. Before we return to our passage, I want to say a few words about how we can apply this teaching about tithing to our situation today. For our situation is very different. Most of the services that the Jewish tithes were intended to fund are provided through our taxes to the government. And so I don't think we can apply it literally, although some people do. It's a whole sermon series in itself to look at this in detail, but I think several principles are clear. Firstly, just as the Levites who dedicated their lives to serving God and his people were to be were to be provided for by the rest of Israel, so the full-time workers of the church, such as our pastor Paul, and in Christian organizations such as Fred and Joe with AWM, or Phil and Carolyn with SIM, they should have their needs provided for by the rest of the church. Our taxes don't contribute to this, of course. But secondly, Just as the people of Israel were to look after the poor, the weak, and the vulnerable amongst them, so the church should work to help those who are most in need. Fortunately, in the UK, a portion of our taxes does go to this, but there are always other ways that we can help each other too and other things for churches to get involved with. And thirdly, Just as the Old Testament tithing system was centered first and foremost on love for God, 
So our giving should be motivated by love and not by duty. There is no strict formula here that I can see. 10% is neither the guide, nor the minimum, nor the maximum. It is for each of us to decide how much we give and to where as God guides us and blesses us. The one thing I would say is that I don't think God wants us to be stingy. We've tried to apply these principles in our pricing for Kings Park, uh, where we are, as always, providing free places for our pastor and his family, for the speaker, for the two children's workers that Ben mentioned, free places for children so that families aren't faced with too high a bill, and subsidized prices for pensioners and others on reduced incomes. That's why we have our special offerings like the one today, so that those who can afford to give more are able to do so. And we trust that God will prompt people to give uh, enough to cover our costs and to do so out of love and not out of compulsion. So returning to Luke 11 and Jesus' criticism of, the host's practice, of his host's practice of tithing, just remember the context here and use maybe a little imagination. Jesus has been having dinner around a Pharisee's house. Maybe the dinner was garnished with some of the herbs from the host's window boxes. Maybe he even made a show of measuring out 10% of the parsley that he had cropped and giving that to the priest who was also one of the guests. What a paragon of virtue and generosity. Or not. <clears throat> Jesus' problem was not that the Pharisees gave a tenth of his parsley uh, to the priest, though arguably it would have been better if he had been more generous and not spent so long making sure it was exactly a tenth and not a leaf more. That sort of behavior itself misunderstands the purpose of tithing, which, as I hope I showed, is not to be mean but to be generous in giving. Jesus' problem was that they focused on this easy to demonstrate visible aspect of following the law while ignoring the foundation and the main focus of it. As I mentioned, Israel never really followed all the rules set out in the book of Moses or the books of Moses, and even when even went through long periods of turning their backs on God completely. And this resulted in God's judgment on them and their expulsion from the promised land, their scattering through the surrounding nations. And when eventually they returned, the remnant was naturally afraid that this might happen again. And so they sought to make sure that it did not, even by, that they did not, even by accident, break God's laws and thus risk his wrath again. If God said, give way at road junctions, then they extended it to stop for five seconds before proceeding even if there's no other traffic there. Now, from one perspective, this sort of thing was quite sensible. The number of accidents at crossroads would certainly be reduced. But who wants to be held up on their journey by constantly stopping for no reason? The people got fed up with this sort of thing, and what is worse, they ended up with entirely the wrong impression of God and what he was concerned with. 
Rather than seeing God as being concerned with their well-being, with reducing accidents, and with encouraging people to be nice to to others by giving priority to each other, the people saw God as a killjoy who just wanted to disrupt their lives with pointless rituals. Ironically, by making the law into a chore rather than a joy, they actually served to bring about what they had originally been trying to avoid, which was the judgment of God falling on them. You see, the Jewish law itself is something like 613 separate commandments, which is quite a lot to remember for starters. And on top of this, the Jewish leaders had added thousands of other rules so that their statute book had about 6,000 regulations. Ironically, a tithe of those were the actual laws. Given that the average person in the street could not read or write, it was pretty much impossible for anyone to learn and let alone keep those 6,000 regulations. So no wonder a whole class of people called experts in the law in our passage today was needed to try to keep things in order. Given the importance to the nation of keeping the law, those who understood it like the experts and those who practiced it fastidiously like the Pharisees would be held in high regard, taking pride of place in their synagogues and being treated with deference wherever they went. And what is more, the rest of the the people would take it as read that what they told them to do is what God expects and wants them to do. Just as it does today, this sort of esteemed position of authority attracts a certain kind of person, someone who likes prestige and accolade. And so it was that the Pharisees and experts in the law were more motivated by their own sense of importance than by any desire to help the ordinary people to live as God wanted them to live. And so once more, God was going to judge Israel for turning their backs on him. And this time, it was the very Son of God himself who delivered his judgment. Woe to you Pharisees! Woe to you experts in the law! Jesus' second woe is to to condemn this desire for positions of honour. The privilege of leadership in God's people is not given for the advancement of the leader, but for the aid of the people being led. Just think of that famous illustration of the good shepherd. His third woe is perhaps a little bit more obscure to us. You're like unmarked graves which people walk over without knowing it. Now, to come in contact with a dead body was a big no-no from from the perspective of ritual purity, partly because God is about life and not death. But the irony is that the very people who were big on ritual purity were actually responsible for defiling people they came across. And that without their knowledge, just as though they had unwittingly walked over a dead body. Far from helping others to be pure, which is what leaders should do, they were the cause of defiling others. Now, the experts of the law who 
prided themselves on knowing how to interpret the Old Testament scriptures, protest that Jesus is insulting them too. I think the sense is that while some Pharisees might be guilty of neglecting justice and, and love, which the law requires, Jesus ought to make a distinction for the religious experts because they at least know what is right and what is wrong. But they too come under fire for adding those thousands of burdens to the law which made it impossible to follow, and worse still, for not caring for how people were going to follow it. In their eyes, their job ended with telling people what to do. It was not their responsibility to help them to do it. But given that the whole thrust of the law is about helping the poor and the weak, Jesus condemns them for not taking that to heart and doing all they can to help rather than hinders his fourth woe. His fifth woe, and excuse the small font there, but hopefully you've got your Bible in front of you. His fifth woe in verses 47 to 51. Uh, is that right? Yep. Uh, is that the experts wanted to be seen as being on the right side of history when it came to the past sins of Israel, which had led to, it, to their exile. They outwardly honored the prophets who had been killed by previous generations, whereas in reality they were doing the same thing, ignoring the inconvenient message that God's judgment was about to fall on Israel. It was easy for them to say that if they were alive when prophets like Zechariah had warned of the need of repentance, they would have listened and punishment could have been avoided. Yet, they were about to be guilty of a greater crime than killing those Old Testament prophets by siding against the Messiah and condemning Jesus himself to death. It's the final woe, however, which is arguably the most serious and certainly is for me as one of the elders responsible for teaching here at the chapel. Woe to you experts in the law because you have taken away the key of knowledge. You yourselves have not entered and you have hindered those who are entering. What greater crime can there be than to take a message of hope and salvation and turn it into damnation? It's bad enough to take the word of God and make it sound dull and boring. It's far more serious to misrepresent it in a way that prevents people from hearing what God is really saying. Now we are very fortunate today in that you all have access to the Bible and are able to read for yourselves what God says there. That's a great privilege and blessing. But that doesn't absolve your teachers from any guilt of preaching a false message. Uh, but it does at least place the key of knowledge, as Jesus calls it, in your hands too, so all hope is not lost. You can check up of what we've been saying this morning. Is that right? Does it hold up? But 2,000 years ago, and even a few hundred years ago, and even today in some countries, this is not the case. The only way the ordinary person could find out what God said was to go to the synagogue or the church and hear the word being read and preached. And if that preaching pointed them away from God, then how could they return? No wonder 
Jesus pronounced those woes. No wonder he was driven to shock them out of their stupor so that some might see the truth, repent, and help people to enter the kingdom of God. So as I said at the beginning, perhaps all six woes can be summed up in one. Woe to those who misrepresent God. As I mentioned, this obviously has an impact on all who preach his word, but that doesn't leave the rest of us off the hook. We we misrepresent God. If we claim to follow him, but are mean-spirited, selfish, greedy, or simply uncaring. We misrepresent God if we are quick to condemn people for their sins, but slow to get down from our high horses, to get alongside them and to help them to walk more closely with God. We can all be guilty of misrepresenting God. So we should not listen to these woes without being moved. But there is, of course, one who never misrepresents God. Indeed, one who presents God in the most direct and perfect way possible. One who is the very image of the invisible God. And it is this Jesus Christ that we present and follow, albeit imperfectly, here at Fairfield Chapel. And we pray that you may all know the joy of following him too. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you pronounce woe on things that deserve woe. That you pronounce woe on things which lead people away from you. You pronounce woe on things which endanger people's eternal lives. You pronounce woe on things which go against who you are and how you want us to be. And we thank you for that, that we can trust and rely on what you have to say, whether it be to the Pharisees or whether it be to uh, repentant sinners, whether it be to us quietly as we read your word, whether it be to us as we gather as your church. We can trust what you say to us through your word and through the great revelation that we have of who you are there. We just ask that everything that's done in this place might point people to you, might present the real Jesus and the real God who is there for us, who is there to love and to care for us, to, uh, to want our nourishment and our flourishment, to want us to grow, uh, to be more like you. Help us to present you, help us to follow you and help us to glorify you in our lives and in our fellowship. Amen. Thank you for listening. If you have any questions or would like prayer relating to anything you've just heard, then please do get in touch. We would love to hear from you. You can do so by emailing us using hello at thurfieldchapel.org or fill in the contact form on our website or send us a message on social media. Thank you again. and Please do join us next week online or in Thurfield itself at one of our services or events. We would be delighted to welcome you. God bless.